I was 13 years old. I worked under the station for a guy called Peter Mavis. And I worked for 50 cents an hour. But before I started working, I had to work three days for free in order to, uh, to learn the job. You're listening to Coney Island Stories, the oral history podcast from the Coney Island History Project. I'm Charles Denston, director of the Coney Island History Project. Welcome to episode one of Coney Island Stories, our podcast produced from oral histories in the History Project's archive. Today we're sharing stories of Coney's restaurants and food stands as told by their mom and pop owners and family members. So many of these stories we've recorded have turned out to be immigrant stories. Coney Island wasn't like other New York neighborhoods. It became the place where people of diverse cultures mingled and assimilated. This is where the American dream came true, where it was easy for people of small means to start a business and achieve great success. One of my favorite oral histories is with Morris Egert, who describes coming to Coney Island as a Polish immigrant and opening a food stand across from Steeplechase Park. Egert later went on to create one of the biggest catering companies in New Jersey and became a very successful man. He recalls being a greenhorn, meaning a recent arrival who didn't quite know the score, and mentions his mother meeting a lantzman, a Jewish word for someone who comes from your hometown back in Europe. 1951, 2, and 3. 1, 2, and 3. I'm trying to remember the land. We paid, eight, we paid $800 for a stand. And the stand had pizza, an oven for pizza, a bar, and we had hot dog grill. And we were greenhorns. We came from Poland. And uh, 10 cents a piece of pizza. Beer, I think 15 cents a beer. Hot dogs, I don't remember and uh, the lady, wonderful lady, Mary and John, they had on sit next to us, they had a, um, a bait and tackle store. You can go in and the people would go to the boardwalk. When we opened up, my mother made gefilte fish and chopped liver and knishes. And this wonderful lady, Mary, came in. She says, you know, this is not the right place. If you want that, you got to go up. 29th Street, 30th Street. You're in the wrong place for this. And this wonderful lady really saved our, saved us. She came in and she taught us how to make pizza and sausage and peppers. <laughs> we ate up the chopped liver. <laughs> where, where did you come from in Poland? I'm from Lviv, Lviv now. Lviv. And how did you wind up in Coney Island? How did you? Uh... I'll tell you how. It's a good story, good question. We were in Paris, New Jersey. When we came, we were in Paris, New Jersey. And we had a little place we doing there, like a little restaurant. And my mother, somehow somebody brought him to Brooklyn to, to meet a, a Lanzmann. You know what Lanzmann is? To meet a Lanzmann. And she came out to Coney Island. And it's so ironic. We're here at Memorial Day weekend. And she came back. And she says, we're crazy in Paris. This is a village. New York. Million and a million mentioned people. Mil- millions and millions of people. We can become millionaires overnight. We're crazy. So they got together three Greenhorn families with $800, and they rented a store for $800. Mm-hmm. And we slept upstairs. There was a bathhouse upstairs. with three families. We slept, and we opened this place. A Greenhorn is somebody who comes to, well, not case to America. They're green. They don't know anything. 
that we call ourselves green ones. You do what you have to do to survive. Coney Island enabled people of small means to rent a tiny space, set up a business, and live in rooms above or behind their store. An August 1938 article in Fortune magazine described Coney Island as more than 500 separate enterprises in violent and continual conflict, perhaps the greatest concentration of independent little businesses in the world. A mere handful of mom-and-pop restaurants founded in Coney Island in the first half of the 20th century have survived and continued to do a thriving business. Nathan's famous Totono's Pizzeria and Gargiulo's have become iconic year-round destinations. Gargiulo's is Coney Island's oldest and finest restaurant. In this 2017 oral history, Josephine Gargiulo Casada, whose grandfather and father founded Gargiulo's in 1907, shared her memories with the Coney Island History Project. So, so tell me um, what it was like growing up in a restaurant, basically, in this famous restaurant. <laughs> well, I, I got the name, nickname Chicky because all I ever ate was chicken. <laughs> and my grandfather would sit there and peel the chicken and put it in my mouth. And then, but I never ate anything else. I wouldn't eat pasta. I didn't eat. All I wanted to eat was chicken. So I got the nickname of Chicky. <laughs> <laughs> and it stuck with you. Stuck with me. We we lived upstairs. There was um, my my mother and father, my uh, my brother and I, and my my two aunts and their husbands. And then my, my one uncle, his wife, and eight children. And we only had two bathrooms up there. <laughs> my grandfather started them. My grandfather was a chef for the Italian line. And uh, on one of his uh, trips, he landed in Coney Island, and he thought it was just like Sorrento, Italy. <laughs> my father uh, designed the building when he went on his, after he went on his honeymoon with my mother in the early 20s, and uh, they were in Florida, and he loved all the architecture there, and he came back and designed the building with an architect. And then as soon as they they completed the building, the crash came. So my father promised uh, uh, all the banks that if if they allowed him to continue in the business, he would pay them all back, And and he did. It took him 14 years to pay them all back, and he paid them every penny. And he had a big party when he did. My father was Lewis. My father decided to sell, and he sold to the Russo brother. And and when he sold, because a lot of people wanted to buy it, a lot of corporations. And my father said, no, it has to be a family. And that's what it is. I think there's three generations working there now. Oh, yeah, it's wonderful. They're a wonderful family. And we go. I go down there quite often. So does my brother. Lunch is great there. Prices are unbelievable. But, you know, the great thing about there is they don't rush you. People sit there for hours. What was the most popular dish at the restaurant? I'd say the lasagna. I mean, my aunt would make the dough, roll it out. I, I remember there was one table in front of the stove. It was a big table with a, uh, a, what, a marble top. And I would always remember them throwing the flour on there and mixing the dough and rolling it out and making, uh, you know, the lasagna and manigotti and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So nobody makes lasagna anymore. They buy all that packaged stuff, you know. They still make everything there. It's unbelievable. 
Totono's Brick Oven Pizza is world famous, and their tiny Neptune Avenue restaurant is a sacred destination for all pizza aficionados. Totono's doesn't sell slices, only pies made from the freshest ingredients. This unassuming Coney Island landmark has survived multiple fires and hurricanes to remain as one of the oldest pizzerias in the world. In this 2016 oral history, Antoinette Balzano, granddaughter of Anthony Totono Perro, tells the story of how he founded Totono Pizzeria Napolitana in Coney Island in 1924. Totono's is the longest running family operated pizzeria in, I would say, the world, because I don't think it's only the United States. And my grandfather was born in Naples on a street called Via Tribunale, which means the uh, tribunals where all the courts were. He came over on, I believe it was the uh, boat called the Margarita. He came over in 1905 and he went to work, uh, came to live in Little Italy, Manhattan, and he worked with uh, Lombardi's. And Lombardi's at the time was a grocery store. And if you come in, there's a famous picture of my grandfather, Anthony Pirro, and Gennaro Lombardi. My grandfather began to make bread for him and then pizza. So my grandfather is really the first pizzaiolo in the United States. But Lombardi's gets credited for the first pizzeria, which it is because it had to become a license because it became a restaurant. What's the difference? A pizzaiolo is the person making the pizza. If it were a woman, it would be a pizzaiola. And uh, listen, I'm showing off. I took Italian for 10 years. I know three words. <laughs> I'm still taking lessons. So the pizzaiolo is the person making the pizza. And uh, the pizzeria is the restaurant itself. So he left Lombardi's in um, 1924. And he came to open his own place in Coney Island. And I believe this building was across the street on Neptune Avenue and it was trailed over on a trailer to the location now in 1924 and that's where we've been since 1924. I believe it's 92 years now. This is our landmark flagship store and, and people come because really nothing has changed. My sister Louise wouldn't change a thing. I said, Cookie, the nails, you want to put them or the wires, you want to put them in, the contractor said, no, 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 they have to stay the way that it always was. It's 1920 when you walk into that restaurant. It is. Or it's earlier. Like going into a time you feel machine. it. You I really feel it. feel it. And you feel the old Coney Island and also the old little Italy of Coney Island. It's not just that you know how to make pizza. You know how to make people happy. Ah. <laughs> Another century-old Coney Island restaurant is Nathan's Famous, founded by Polish immigrants Nathan and Ida Handworker in 1916. Located at Stillwell and Surf Avenues, the amusement area's Times Square, the venerable hot dog grab joint remains Coney Island's biggest year-round draw. In this 2007 interview with the Coney Island History Project, Nathan and Ida's son, Saul Handworker, recalls how he started working in the family business as a boy in the 1930s and tells his memories of his parents. From the time I was a little child, I used to be taken into work in the kitchen uh, with the piling up rolls on roll boards, cutting frankfurters from the bundles of frankfurters. I was involved in all those. I had a lot of fun. Father started you off pretty early. Yeah, actually, my mother was working with me all the time. She was the one that was teaching me things. 
So they were both they were both hands on. They were both working there all the time. Oh yes, they were there. My father was there constantly, and my mother was there as much as, as almost as much as him, except that she had to take care of her family. Is it, is it true that she had the secret recipe? Is it true? I don't think so. <laughs> it was not. There was no such thing as a secret recipe. I'm sorry to say, it was something that they tried with the manufacturer, the different ingredients, different spices, until they got what they were satisfied with. They wanted to get the thing that was right from their point of view. And that's what they did. Obviously, it succeeded. Absolutely. It's a huge crowd. So it was just unbelievable seeing the crowds. I was very impressed as a, as a child. And the people serving were extraordinary because they were very fast. They had fast hands, and they dished it out quickly. And I'll never forget the year that uh, prohibition of beer. Remember the sale of beer? The prohibition was ended, and they were allowed to sell beer. My father took the, the uh, custard stand that was right across the alley and used that to give out free beer that day. And with the free mugs with the Nathan's name on it, so people took it for souvenirs. And it was extraordinary, the mobs that were there. I was standing there watching all this. Did, did Nathan ever go out and get online and just uh, kind of go and see how things were going and listen to what people were saying? And uh... He'd always go out into the crowd and wanted, he wanted to observe how people were reacting, how they were responding, how they were being served, how they were being treated. He, his main concern was that customer had to be satisfied. He was very concerned. He also had a very, very uh, soft heart. He never turned away a guy who came up and said he was hungry and needed something to eat. He always gave him something to eat, always. And that was one of the big things I admired about my father. I respected him. Next door to Nathan's on Surf Avenue is Williams Candy, Coney Island's oldest candy shop, famous for its jelly apples and marshmallow treats. Next to Williams is Pete's Clam Stop, where a humorous sign says, Eat clams, make babies. Eat oysters, make twins. The owner of both stores is Pete Agrippides, a native of Greece who came to Coney Island in 1949. I was 13 years old. And I worked under the station for a guy called Peter Mavis. And I worked for 50 cents an hour. But before I started working, I had to work three days for free in order to, uh, to learn the job. I stayed with him for a couple months, first summer. Second summer, I went for next to the station on Stillwell Avenue for a gentleman named Pappas. For him, I worked for two years. I was working behind the counter in the restaurant. Fast food, Frankfurters, and so on. When I came over in 1975 over here, with that little store that we bought, we got an auction because actually the guy lost it. There were 35 stores all around me. Across the street, in back of me, the Bowery, on the other side of the Bowery, where Steeplechase used to be. As of 10 years, 
the only ones that was left, it was me and Nathan's. Everybody else. I got bigger, Nathan's got smaller. I'm not bragging, but uh, that's the truth. What's your biggest seller in the uh, restaurant here? My biggest seller? Yeah, yeah, what's your biggest seller? You'd be surprised. Shish kebab. Shish kebabs, yeah, those look good. Shish never existed. Over here, we put them in 1984, 85. Some Greek on a boardwalk. They used to have them in the city, but some Greek on a boardwalk put a wagon outside the boardwalk, outside the store, and used to sell uh, four or five pieces of meat on a stick in a wagon. And uh, I saw it. The other friends of mine saw it from the boardwalk that has stores. He says, this guy's doing terrific. He had a line up there. So we, we decided to, to push his kebab. It turned out well. We did a, at that time it was known as a souvlaki. Four pieces of meat, no no onions, no peppers, no nothing. And he charged a dollar. We uh, put a pepper and an onion on it, and four pieces of meat, a little bit larger than meat, and we charged a dollar and a quarter. It turned out well. Worked well. What's the biggest seller in the candy? Jelly apples. Jelly apples. That's a beautiful display. Jelly apples. I think we have, uh, not many people have them. There's a few people that have them. But uh, I know we sell more than anybody else in the city or in the state. Too, because uh, it's Coney Islands. We're known for that. We had the, originally it was a caramel corn. That's like package acts. Yeah. Fresh caramel corn. The, the sign up there, instead of Williams Candy, used to be caramel corn. And elderly people used to come down here because they make it freshly, daily or weekly, whatever. They still love that, but that phased away now. Jelly apples, cotton candy, marshmallows, we have lollipops. We're distributors of all lollipops from Adams and Brooks of California. We supply Coney Island and we supply all the wholesalers. What else you want to know about Coney Island? I'm down here 60 years. Yeah, congratulations. Huh? I love Coney Island. My son likes it. My daughter became a doctor, so she doesn't really care about Coney Island. But my son likes it. We work hard. We worry a lot, and we pray that God gives us uh, sun and heat. That's what we need. And you know, I tell my son, I said, stop worrying. I says, it's raining. You can't fight the guy up there. The sun will come out. Don't worry about it. Funny thing about Coney Island, we get a bad spring. It evens out in the fall, in the summer. We get better weather. If the spring is terrific, good weather, all of us come. July or August will rain every day. It just evens out, so there's no... Uh, you work hard, you put the apron on, you're going to make money. One, one thing, that sign, the oysters, where'd you get the idea for that? Yeah, we, we had, a, I, that was my idea, we just put down, a, everybody used to say, they used to, people used to come and say, you know, uh, I'm going to eat a dozen clams today, I'm going to go home and uh, listen. And uh, constantly they used to say that. So I come out with the, the saying, eat clams, you make babies, eat oysters, you make twins. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs>Thank you for listening to the Coney Island History Project podcast, Coney Island Stories. This episode was produced by Charles Denson, Ali Lemer, and Trisha Vita. Music in the episode by Blue Dot Sessions. You can listen to the full interviews featured in this podcast in our oral history archive at ConeyIslandHistory.org. If you have a question or would like to record an oral history, contact us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or our website. Stay tuned for the next episode of Coney Island Stories, the oral history podcast from the Coney Island History Project.
This program is part of the Cultural Immigrant Initiative, supported in part by the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, in partnership with the City Council and New York City Councilman Mark Traeger.